The General Services Administration has completed two rounds of a three-round plan to sell off unneeded federal buildings. It hasn't gone all that well, according to congressional auditors. Sales took too long, and a special recommendation board says it therefore didn't have the money to discover other buildings to sell. Can this program get back on track? For details, we turn to the Acting Director of Physical Infrastructure Issues at the Government Accountability Office, Jill Naman. Jill, good to have you back. Thank you. Great to be here. And this whole process was dictated as a six-year pilot project back in, what, was it 2016 by Congress yeah. called FASTA. Just review for us FASTA and what the agencies are supposed to be doing here. Sure. The Federal Asset Sale and Transfer Act, or FASTA, like you said, is a six-year pilot project. It was intended to have three rounds where properties are identified for disposal. And it included some special features to help address some of the longstanding challenges that agencies have had in selling federal real property that's unneeded or underutilized. For example, it set up some timeframes and sales targets. It also created this board, the Public Building Reform Board, that was meant to identify these projects and help make recommendations of properties that could be sold. What happened? It took a long time to get those initial sales off the ground. And how does the financing work? Why does it cost money to sell a building as opposed to buy one? Right. Another feature of FASTA is a funding mechanism that is supposed to be self-sustaining. So sales proceeds from one round of sales are supposed to help prepare the next round of properties for sale. So some of the things that this kind of funding is needed for is uh, environmental assessments, historical preservation assessments. Sometimes properties are occupied by tenants, and so contracts have to be closed out, tenants have to be moved. Those kind of things take money to conduct. All right. So what did you discover about how it actually went? You looked at the first round, which I guess concluded in 2019. Did they sell any buildings? Were they sold on time? What were the issues that came up? Sure. Uh, Agencies have encountered a number of setbacks in this process. Ten buildings from the 2019 round have actually been sold for proceeds of about $194 million. So that sounds pretty good. But the sales target for that round was about $500 million to $750 million. So it's below the expected sales target. And there's still one property from that round that has not been listed yet. It's expected to be listed for sale later this year. All right. So that's three years late, in other words. Well, why so little return if people felt these buildings could fetch a half a billion up to three quarters of a billion? How come they only got $194 million? Right. Well, some of the highest value properties haven't sold yet. There's one property that's still being listed. And that last one that hasn't been listed yet are some of the highest value properties in that first round. And there's just been a number of delays in trying to get these other properties sold. Uh, there was a change in how GSA, the General Services Administration, planned to sell the properties. They shifted the strategy, which contributed to some of the delays. There's been a long time maybe longer than expected, to do some of those preservation and environmental assessments and coordination with local stakeholders. Uh, So all of that's contributed to the delay, and it's unclear yet if the process, you know, has netted the maximum value that was expected from the uh, round. And, of course, the real estate market kind of weakened in the intervening years because 
people are dumping properties because nobody's occupying buildings anymore across all sectors thanks to the pandemic and the work changes. Is that fair to say? That is fair. That was actually one of the setbacks that we heard about that contributed to the 2021 round. Uh, that round was actually terminated. The number of properties and the value of properties, the complexity and type of properties that the board recommended was really limited in part due to the lack of proceeds and delays in the sales from the 2019 round. But we also heard that COVID was a factor in agencies' uncertainty in putting forward properties for sale. We're speaking with Jill Nauman. She is Director of Physical Infrastructure Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Would it also be fair to say that the point of this program was not necessarily maximum revenue, but getting things off the government's books to avoid future costs of maintenance and so on? Yeah, there's really two goals, definitely reducing the footprint and reducing excess and underutilized properties. Uh, At the same time, trying to maximize the sale of those properties in order to be able to sell more as the self-sustaining funding mechanism was supposed to work. And the buildings sold, were these like dogs that were run down in terrible areas or were they prime nice buildings in good areas? Can we characterize them in, in any way? There's really a variety. They range from some very large campuses and in what could be considered some desirable locations to things like a parking lot. So it was a really wide variety. And one of the things that was really important to this process is communicating and coordinating with some of the local stakeholders and community to understand their wants and needs and the availability of the properties in their communities. Therefore, your report is saying that for the third round, that you hope GSA will incorporate some of the lessons learned then, and what are the principal lessons they need to inculcate in order to have a successful third round? We did hear from a number of the agencies involved about some options that could help address the setbacks they encountered. For example, I mentioned the shift in sales strategy. Committing to a sales strategy earlier in the process could help reduce some of those delays. That external coordination that I mentioned is pretty timely and very important and contributed to some of the properties being on the list, taken off the list. So having that really nailed down and and understood before the properties are listed is very important. More coordination between the board and GSA on just understanding how long these due diligence activities might take could also make sure that the timing is understood and that the properties that have been selected will be able to be sold in the timeframe that's expected. There could also be things that Congress could do, for example, re-examining those timeframes and deadlines. One thing we heard was that maybe those timeframes weren't realistic given all the activities that were necessary to conduct. So there could be things that Congress could consider, too. And when you mentioned sales strategy, what does that exactly mean? I mean, commercial buildings are sold and bought all the time. Yeah, GSA usually uses an auction website to sell properties individually. One of the things that the board was considering and recommending was to use a broker, a private sector broker, and sell all of these properties in the 2019 round as a portfolio. So there was some planning and consideration of that strategy, but it was later decided that it might not really maximize the value. And given the differences in time frames for those due diligence activities between the different projects, GSA determined that was 
probably not the best way to go. Probably somebody would complain that they had to pay a commission and that would be a political issue. You paid 6%, you know, to buy this kid for this building. Briefly, do the agencies whose buildings are actually being sold, or at least it might be GSA buildings, but the agency occupying them, do they have to agree to move out or give up that property? Yes, that is part of the process. The normal process, agencies would identify excess properties on their own, but having the board in the FASTA process, the intention was to really think more creatively about how federal properties are used and what agencies need and uh, considering things like consolidating agencies from multiple buildings into one federal building, for example. The idea was for the board to try to be a little more creative in the process. And what's GSA's reaction? I guess OMB has a measure in all of this, too. What's the reaction to your findings been so far? Right. Well, the agencies did agree that there could be lessons learned, and we thought that GSA was best positioned to lead a coordinated effort to consider what lessons should be learned and report those to Congress. And they agreed with our recommendation and had really been considering some lessons learned on their own. But we thought it was important for there to be a really coordinated effort so that each of the different perspectives of OMB, GSA, the board could be gathered and considered together to figure out what's the best course forward that could be helpful for this last round or even future disposal efforts. And FASTA did set a six-year process for all of this. Does Congress need to, I guess you'd call it, reauthorize or refresh that law just so that they have more than six years because it's going to end up taking more than six years? Yeah, the FASTA is set to expire after that final round in 2024. That's why we thought that these lessons learned, if FASTA isn't renewed in some kind of way, we thought it important to consider these lessons learned not only in the context of FASTA, but how what we've learned from FASTA could inform the usual disposal efforts going forward. Jill Nauman is Director of Physical Infrastructure Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much. Thank you. And by the way, dynamite never came up in any of the discussions on disposal, did it? No, no, didn't hear that at all. <laughs> all right. We'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. 
And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of 
coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders, and then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in this in this sense. Looking back, what what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today too. Working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say like a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But 
I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.